Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications consultant, I can turn a piece of lackluster, jargon-filled, or technical prose into clear, dynamic narrative. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. Each week, I alternate this Finding Fertile Ground podcast with my other podcast, Companies That Care, which is about business leaders making a difference in the world. On both of my podcasts, I strive to highlight voices from underrepresented populations, especially people of color, women, people who are LGBTQIA, non-Christian, and immigrants, the people who don't always get a platform. You can find all the information on my website and social media. Today, I interview Melissa Pierce, who was faced with a huge crisis in her 40s. She lost her beloved husband unexpectedly and became a single mom in that moment. Now she dedicates her time to supporting other widows, providing the support and guidance she wished she had when she first became a widow. I posted photos and further details about Melissa on my website, including links to her website. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, welcome, Melissa. Hello, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining me on the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Hi, Marie. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, it's great to talk to you after so many months away. I know. I know. It's been a while. Hopefully, it won't be too much longer before we can actually start singing together again. But you have to move back to the Portland area for that to happen, probably. <laughs> oh, I have I have a plan. I have a okay. plan. If we're still at the coast, I'm going to drive in oh, and, really? and, <laughs> and stay with one of you sopranos. Oh, you know, good. the altos and sopranos will, will co-mingle here. Oh, wonderful. That's lovely. <laughs> That's lovely. So yeah. Melissa, Melissa and I sing together on a choir called Rock Voices. And we meet once a month. To, I mean, I'm sorry, once a week to practice. And we memorize 15 songs a season. So we've been doing it online. And it's just not the same. It's so, not the same. And, yeah. I, and I also miss memorizing. That really kind of yeah. challenged my brain. And that was really good for it to memorize all the, the lyrics. Yes, me too. Yeah. I know. Now I'm cha- now I'm sometimes challenged just to do one. <laughs> right. I yeah. know. I know. But we have to go easy on ourselves during yeah. this time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So let's let's go back to the very beginning of your life. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about your life beginnings? I was raised in the the Portland area, uh, Portland, Oregon, actually a suburb called Tigard, and grew up there and the 70s, 80s kind of childhood with, I have uh, my folks and my two older brothers, and I was involved with choir and drama, like theater productions. So I did that all through uh, middle school and high school. You know, I don't know, big hair, 80s, kind of, <laughs> you know, going to yes. the mall, kind of your yeah. normal, typical stuff. Yeah. Mine was like that too. And I grew up in Beaverton. So we're unusual that we both oh. grew up around here. I'm yeah. older than you. So I, but I, I did go through the big hair thing. For me, I remember this when Washington Square opened up and it was a really big deal. Yes. Yeah. I used <laughs> to go with my girlfriends on Saturdays. My, our folks would drop us off and we would just like, hang out at the mall. So I know, for, mall hours. Yeah, for hours. hours. I don't I know. know how we did it, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that's a thing anymore. I don't know. Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't 
know. That's a good question. I mean, my kids have not got yeah. I mean, one of one of them did once, but mm-hmm. also my I have three boys. You have boys as well, right? So yeah, I have yeah. two boys. Yeah. And back then there wasn't a lot of TV. Like I think we got two channels clearly because they didn't we really didn't get cable until I was in high school. So yeah, yeah. it was not much TV to watch. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna walk them all. Right, exactly. It was more of a novelty back then. Right. And I remember going to the record store and buying 45 records, you know, things like that. Yes. That was a big deal. Oh my gosh, we are so dating ourselves. I I actually have, my parents found my 45 records a few years ago and I actually just recently gave them away. It's like, no, it's holding on to them for some bizarre reason. So, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe your kids are like, what are these weird CDs? They're interesting. I know. I know. (laughs) Let's advance ahead to Mm -hmm. tell me about how you met Dave. How did, how did you and Dave get together? I was working full time as a legal secretary and I decided to go to school at night and get my paralegal degree. And I was in a, a, a group. It was like night school kind of thing after work. And I met this really good friend who was in my class. Her name is Nina. And, uh, her brother Dave needed a roommate at the time, and so did I. And I had met him once before, really briefly, but I knew Nina, so I'm like, okay, well, he's your he's your brother, so he's got to be, you know, okay. <laughs> like, if, like if anything happens, you know, I can go after you, Nina. But, um, right, right. but you know, so but he seemed like a really a decent guy, and we and we met up and we chatted, and we decided, okay, we're going to be roommates. And I was dating somebody at the time, and so and he was dating somebody at the time, and. So we moved in together as roommates and we became like really, really good friends for, you know, it was a couple of years. We had a, this really deep friendship. And uh, then, you know, one, one snowy evening, we, <laughs> we weren't dating other people and we had feelings for each other. And I, like, I had feelings for him, but I didn't want to mess up the friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really dragging my feet on letting him know. And he basically, he was the same way. So we um, ended up, uh, becoming romantic, and then I moved out because it's really hard to date somebody when you're living with them. <laughs> I <bet>. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. Keeping keeping kind of the mystery uh, alive, but mm-hmm. I actually really knew him at that point really well. Like I knew he had a great relationship with his family and his mom, and um, he put the toilet seat down, and oh, he was just like, you know, like he was really <laughs> courteous, and he was just really yeah. kind, kind human being, and yeah. So then. I moved out, we, we dated, and then um, we ended up getting married in 2000, All Yeah, right. 20, 21 years ago. So then tell us about how you made the decision to adopt. Well, my dad was really ill a year after, well, he was actually ill for, for several years, but um, he ended up having a brain tumor, which eventually took his life in 2003. Oh so, so between you know 2000, when we got married in 2003, I was really wrapped up with the care of, of my, my dad and helping my mom out. And so we wanted to have kids and we were experiencing, you know, some fertility issues, but we just weren't focused on it at that time. So we're like, okay, we'll, we'll deal with this, you know, after my dad either recovers or whatever happens. And he eventually passed in 2003. So at that point, you know, take a deep breath and we're like, okay, we're ready to start a family and really dig into this. And at that point, it wasn't going to work. We weren't able to conceive naturally or um, with with assistance. So we're like, well, what do we want? We really want to have a family. We want to be a family. What does that look like? So we just 
dug into the adoption scene and realized that we were in our late 30s, you know, pushing 40. And at that point, like we're kind of older. So would it be fair mm-hmm. to to adopt an infant? And we're like, no. And I was never really baby crazy. So we decided to adopt older children from the foster care system or from, from Oregon uh, Department of Human Services, DHS. Mm-hmm. And so we went down that road and we got went through trainings and we got uh, certified to be foster parents, background checks, you know, all, all the things. We did a lot of deep work. We had to do a lot of uh, writing about who we were as parents and who we were as a couple and how we intended to, to parent and our parenting styles. It was really this really cool way to get to know each other deeper, actually. Okay as we're moving through this process. And I mean, how do you know about your parenting styles if you haven't parented? That's, that's right. right. Yeah. I mean, cause you really had to kind of dig in, well, how are your parents? As parents? Oh, I see. And uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Kind of things like that. Or what do you intend your style to be? And, uh-huh. and, you know, so it was like, I don't know, I've never really thought about it. So it was really cool to individually start journaling and writing these things out. And then Dave and I coming together and talking about our individual parenting, like how we were parented and stuff we just never really kind of dug into too deep. We were really on the same page. He was my husband, my partner, my, and he was going to be my co-parent. And so like all this discussion before was super, super helpful. We fostered our two sons and they were five and seven when we met them and they were, they're brothers. Yeah. It was about a year we fostered them. And because they weren't available for adoption legally until their mother's parental rights were terminated them voluntarily. We legally adopted them in 2006, mid-2006. Yeah. Uh-huh. You mentioned that they had had a lot of childhood trauma. Yeah. I mean, they were five and seven and kind of in and out of foster care situations, you know, going back and forth with with their birth mom and just a lot of trauma. The way it was explained to me, because we had a lot of counseling, a lot of support, family counseling throughout this whole process. And the way it was explained to me is that when kids are developing, you know, at a certain point in their life, whether they're 18 months or 24 months or three years old, they're developing certain naturally developing certain, you know, skills or their brain is developing in a certain way. And so when there's trauma, at that certain time, sometimes the development stops or is disorganized in some ways. And so we found that to be the case with, with our kids. Being you know, pulled from different living situations and all the chaos there, it, it really affected them. It's nothing that we can do about it, but we could kind of build bridges over those holes that were created in their development. Yeah, that's a lot to deal with, I think. Right. And Mm -hmm. I had no idea, even though you're in training and they're like, hey, this is, you know, what's going to happen? Or these are the things you need to look for. And both Dave and I were like, oh, yeah, we can handle that. You know, we got it. (laughs) We got this. Uh Um, You know, because Dave was a teacher. Oh, that probably helped. So it so helped. And he was also a coach, like an athletic coach, baseball, football, Uh, all that. And so that was a way to kind of connect with the boys and also have them get their energy out into sports. Now, how old are the boys now? They are 21. Oh my God. 23. I know my oldest uh, just, just graduated in May. Really proud of him. Yeah. Pretty amazing. 
Time flies, yeah. doesn't it? They're young men and they're yeah. you know, self-sufficient. They're supporting yeah. themselves with wow. you know a little little grocery money from me yeah. here and there. But yeah, but that's they're great. Yeah, yeah, well they're doing really mom. well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So let's talk about what happened next when Dave died. So we were living in Portland. So I mentioned Dave was a teacher, but he was teaching math. And that was not his love. And that was also not what his education was in. It was in music. He was a music educator. But, you know, as you know, a lot of music programs are cut um, in the schools. So this opportunity in Eastern Oregon came up for a K through 12 music teacher, which is like unheard of. But this particular school district was like, we need to focus on music. We need to bring music back. Mm -hmm. And Dave was from Eastern Oregon, not not this particular town, but like his folks were there and there was a lot of connection there. So we decided to take that job and we moved our family to Eastern Oregon in the Grand. That was a big shock for me because I'm from yeah. the, the Portland area. It would be a where shock for malls. me too. I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, like, where's the mall? Where's the um, mall? Yeah. <laughs> it was an adventure. And uh-huh. at that point, we were still such a young family and getting to know each other and connect with each other. We thought it'd be a really great opportunity, Dave, to be on campus. So he was their teacher. It was a smaller community and we could have lots of eyes on the boys. And then I ended up, took my job with me. I had a job in Portland, but they allowed me to work remote. We moved to Eastern Oregon and we had a few years there. And then in 2011, it was just Friday night. We went out for pizza. We met some friends of ours at a pizza joint. And Brad, my oldest, was on a field trip in Portland that weekend. So we met this other couple and their family. We had pizza and we went back to the house. And Dave was like, gosh, you know, I just don't feel that good. Uh. I kind of feel like I'm coming down with a with a chest cold. And so I'm like, oh, okay, here's some cough syrup or here's some mucinex or whatever. Uh-huh. And he kissed me on the cheek. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to get you sick. So I'm just going to go to bed. And he did. And so this was Friday night. And then my youngest and I just kind of curled up on our sofa bed and watched the A-Team movie. I mean, this is it's weird. I remember yeah. like certain things so clearly. And I ended up falling asleep. My youngest and I fell asleep. And so I woke up early the next morning and I thought to myself, well, that's weird. Like Dave should be up because he's a super early riser. I went and put some wood in the wood stove because that's how we heated our our house and let the dog out. And I went in the in the bedroom and I just noticed his leg was outside of the blankets and it was like this really weird color, uh. um, like gray almost. And then I looked at him and I mean, I knew he was like something was not right. And so I shook him and he was cold. Oh. And then I just like realized that, oh my God, he's he's dead. I'm just screaming. And then I'm trying to do CPR. At that point, I was just screaming and yelling. And my youngest was in the living room. He's like, mom, mom, what's going on? I'm like, don't come in here. Uh-huh. You know, don't, don't come in here. He must've been just terrified. Uh-huh. And I couldn't find my cell phone. And then I realized I had a landline for my office and so I grabbed the landline and I called 911 and they were directing me how to do CPR. And I was 
doing it again, but I told them that it wasn't working. And then they, they're like, can we contact somebody that you know? And his Dave's brother was lived nearby, but I didn't know his number because I didn't have my cell phone. Oh yeah. So they were able to somehow, I mean, they have all the all the things oh. there. So they were, were able to contact him. That night we had an ice and snowstorm. So it took the paramedics. Oh my gosh. I think a sheriff came up, was able to get his vehicle up, but it took the paramedics about an hour to get there. Oh, so Bryce wow. and I were alone I, and I went out <sighs> and had to, had to tell Bryce. It was just like some, some, I have these memories that are super sharp and vivid. And then I'm so foggy on so many other details. I ended up calling one of the coaches because Dave was supposed to coach basketball that morning. And I had to call the other coach and let him know. Oh my God. And because I'm like, oh, I better let him know, you know, I, like weird things. Then I realized, oh my God, I need to let my oldest Brad know because I don't want him to get some weird text. Because now, you know, in small town stuff spreading. So then I contacted the teacher that he was with in Portland and I had to tell him. Then my brother was on their way to get Brad. So I had to tell Brad over the phone. I mean, that's, that was a nightmare. And yeah. it was just the whole thing was a nightmare. And it just, he just died in his sleep. You know, I don't know the medical examiner. I didn't like her answer on what it was. Oh, really? (laughs) What did she say it was? She said that it was undetermined and then with underlying factors of sleep apnea because he snored Uh and a respiratory illness. But I went and saw a couple psychics a year later. That's where you go for answers. Uh And... And they both indicated that it was it was definitely like a, a heart cardiovascular, so like a heart attack of some kind. So sleep yeah. apnea, that's weird. Just because you snored. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. you can like stop breathing. Yeah, I know. You like can, all but... together, but it wasn't like that. And you know, at that time I'm making all these decisions at the funeral home two days later, they were talking about embalming him. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, don't you need to do an autopsy to find out? And they're like, well, no, I mean, you can, you can opt for an autopsy. It will cost you this many thousand dollars and we need to send his body to Portland or Boise and his family. We were all there gathered together and we all kind of talked about it and decided like, no, because he wasn't going to pass down any kind of weird medical anomaly to our kids. And then um, all the brothers and his brothers and sisters went and got full checkups just to see if there was some kind of genetic thing that might have mm-hmm. caused this. But yeah, I do regret that. But I was making all these crazy decisions with not a clear head. And the fact was, nothing could bring him back. Right. So even if you knew exactly why he died, it wouldn't have helped anything. You know, right. Really. Yeah. And I, I remember asking the paramedics, like, because it was so weird for me not to be in the bed with him. Like every other night I was in the bed with him and, and I asked him, I was like, well, what if I was there, you know, and I could have given him CPR sooner. And they just, they said, there's nothing. I guess they could tell by how whatever appeared on his body. I don't know. I try not to dig too much into it, make myself crazy, but they just said there's nothing you could do. Also, even if you were in bed with him, you don't know whether, I mean, because my husband and I, we often cuddle at first, but then we kind of pull away. So, right. You don't know that you would have even really. I would have known. No. Yeah. 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 Depending on how heavily you sleep and whether he made any noise or. Yeah. But I'm sure that haunts you. Yeah. Um, You know, it's something I do. It pops into my mind, but then it's also like, I can't control 
what has what has happened already I can control how I respond to it that's kind of my credo or that's kind Mm -hmm. of how I live life now because there's so many out of control things that happen and I can't you know spin into that so you were only 44 when that happened yeah I was 44 Dave was 46 and our boys were it is I mean it's just so out of order yeah I mean that's I mean we know we're all gonna die at some point Right. I mean, that's always, we're not escaping that, but it just, it's, it was so out of order. It wasn't like, Hey, we're going to live to 80 or 90 Uh and then we're going to hold hands and peacefully die in our sleep or what it was just like, boom, so shocking. And so out of the blue. And then our boys were 10 and 13 at the time and they had already been through hell Uh and already lost their birth father through heroin addiction. Oh And, and, you know, so like, how does that happen? That's not supposed to happen. Boys aren't supposed to lose two fathers. That's just not how that, that, that works. And so I was really angry about that. Uh I bet. Really angry. And then you were all the way out in LeGrand where you didn't have much support system. Right. Dave taught about 10 miles from LeGrand in this community called Union. And we actually moved. It was about a week after Dave died, after the memorial service, we moved into Union. And so they basically took care of us. Oh, that's good. They, because Dave was such a big part of that community as a teacher and as a, you know, coach, you know, they were devastated too. So it was kind of their way to grieve was to help us in any way that they could. So I had a lot of help because I had to go back to work full-time after a a five-week stress leave or bereavement. And I couldn't always take the boys to their soccer games or their basketball games or baseball. And um, so I had a lot of the moms really helped out with that. And sometimes I needed a break. I just needed to just be by myself or go for a walk. And so I had a lot of eyes on my kids who cared about us. So that was, that was really lovely. After the school year was over, I made a decision to move back to Portland because that's where my support is family and friends and more resources to Uh tap into. How did you process this, especially with your kids? How did you all deal with this? Well, like the first year was, I think we were just in shock. It was just kind of not business as usual, but it was like, go to school. I was working, do homework, do dinner, you know, all that. So it was kind of robotic almost. Uh-huh. Then after that, this, the shock was wearing off. Like I, I was really not dealing with what had happened or my emotions or emotions would come up or feelings. And I'd be like, nope, I don't want to do that. I don't want to feel sad, <laughs> you know, or uh-huh. I don't want to. So I was really stuffing my emotions and that's not healthy uh-huh. and really kind of not acknowledging what had happened. Like for the first six months or so, I kind of had to convince myself that Dave was really not coming back. Oh, yeah. it's like part of me thought, Oh, you know, he's just on this really long fishing trip and and he's going to walk through the door, you know, any minute now. But as I was starting to make big, big decisions, you know, with regards to my family, I realized like I'm the only one doing this. Like I don't have a sounding board anymore. I am making all, all the decisions and it scared me because I don't know, I never really trusted my gut that much before or trusted in myself. And as I said, I was stuffing my emotions. So I decided to tap into some grief counseling. That was a big game changer for me and helped me understand what I was going through and also what my kids were going through. 
did your kids get counseling as well? Yeah, I took them to the Dougie Center. Have uh-huh. you heard of the Dougie yeah, Center? Oh, yeah. I know yeah. about the Dougie Center. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And so I would take them to their kind of supervised play where they would be with other kids who had lost either a parent or a brother or a sister. They would go off and do their play thing. And then all the parents would gather while they were doing that. And so we would kind of have our own group. Took them there, might have been a month or two, like once a week I would take them. And then then they said, you know, we really don't like this or we don't want to do this anymore. And so I had to honor that. And mm-hmm. so I said, yeah, okay, that's that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I continued in, in grief counseling. And I, that's where I actually got my grief counselor was through the Dougie Center, mm-hmm. through a recommendation from them. And that got me kind of thinking about, well, I really need to take care of myself at this point, because if I don't, then I can't take care of my kids. And that's something like Dave and I were like full on parents. Like we Uh just went into parenting mode. The minute we got them, we were like, boom, we're going to do this parenting thing hard. Uh (laughs) You know, like Uh we're all in. I knew that I kind of wasn't all in because I was just trying to deal with my own grief and the only way that I could support them was really to start taking really good care of myself. And that was a game changer for me. Can you talk a little bit about hitting bottom? Was that before you went to the grief counselor or what was happening when mm-hmm. you hit bottom? I was in grief counseling. And at that point, it was like everything's rushing out. Everything's uh-huh. coming out and all these emotions and all these feelings were, were coming out. And so I did start drinking I didn't drink like the minute d- when Dave died, I, I just, the taste of alcohol was disgusting to me mm-hmm. and, and I drank wine and, and beer and stuff before. So for like six months, I didn't drink at all. It didn't sound good. And then as all these feelings were coming in, it was just drinking was a way to soothe myself. Right. I'm sure. Yeah. And it was also a way to f- go to sleep. <laughs> it was also our pass out or whatever you want to call it, because I was not sleeping very well. And so I was over drinking, I was working full time, and I was parenting, and I was mm-hmm. not doing any of them very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my older brother is in recovery. And so I remember reaching out to him and like, hey, this is what I'm doing. And it's it's scaring me. And, and I think I need help. And just me reaching out, because that's not something I like to do is to admit that I need help or mm-hmm. be vulnerable in any mm-hmm. way. But at this point, it's like, I, I have to be vulnerable. I have to ask for help. I need help. That was my bottom. I was spinning all the plates, doing all the things, right. you know, helping homework, making dinner, paying bills, going grocery shopping, working full time, picking the kids up, um, helping them with, with other things, going to all the sporting events, and then drinking on top of it. That was not, uh-huh. all the plates are starting to crash. So right. at that point, that was, was my bottom. And I just kind of moved myself up by there's a lot of self-care and it wasn't just like bubble baths or massages <laughs> or pedicures. It was really, I had to really change the way that I communicated with myself because a lot of the talk that I noticed was not super kind or compassionate to myself, mm. really, really hard on myself. And so self-care to me was, wow, that, that wasn't a really nice thought, Melissa, how can we change that up? Or is that true? Are you a bad parent? No, you're doing the best that you can under really extraordinarily overwhelming circumstances. I was thinking about a lot of people who are single parents, they usually Mm -hmm. have a little bit more warning, Mm -hmm. you know, like if they get divorced or even if they're Mm -hmm. having marital problems, they may see that on on the horizon for themselves. Mm -hmm. You were thrown into it as a complete shock. 
I mean, it was right. like, you never probably never imagined you'd have to do it mm-hmm. on your own. No, because yeah. that's not what, what that's not what I signed up for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god! You know, like Dave and I were doing this as a team. Like he had my back, and I had his. And yeah. when things would be like too much for him, I would take over. Or you know, we this balance. We had this balance, and like that was gone. That was yeah. that was totally gone. Did you feel like you grew closer to your sons through this experience a little bit, or was that how? Did that happen? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, we're we're traumatized. And we all dealt with it in different ways. At one point, my oldest, they had access to counseling, and they would kind of be in and out of counseling. But my oldest really, really struggled with just stuffing his emotions as well. Uh Like he always kind of was that way just growing up when he hit puberty. And the 14, 15, that was really, really rough for Uh him and and our family. And I threw as many resources as I could at him and just, and tried to help him as much as he could and worked with the school and worked with him. And and he was just so shut down. I sought help for him to where he was not living in our home for about two years, but it changed our lives. And he graduated from college, like I said, you know, and like, I remember talking to one of his counselor that he had, who's supposed to be the best you know, the best to work with young men who have been through a lot of trauma. And I remember he called me into his office and and said, hey, I can't help you. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, what? You're supposed to be like, I'm counting on you, you know? And he's like, you know, I'm not the guy for the job. And so I remember just breaking down and crying. And I just, this thought came into my head, like, okay, I'm going to ask him. And so I just asked him, like, if this was your kid, what would you do? And so he told me what he would do. And he gave me the names and numbers of some folks he thought who could help. And so that's what I did. I just contacted them and interviewed them and hired them and they saved our lives. Wow. Again, Mm -hmm. what a tough thing to go through, you know, on your own too. Yeah. Well, and if I hadn't been taking care of myself and really tapping into at that point, as I'm taking care of myself deeply, I'm starting to really trust myself. A lot of my decisions were not coming from my head. I was really in my heart and my gut and like, what do I need to do? And then I would ask myself and I would either get some kind of like tingles, like bodily goosebumps, or I would just kind of know like, no, that's not the person you need to talk to. I talked to Dave a lot and I still Uh do. Uh And I was like, okay, it's your turn to parent here. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Please wrap your love around him oh. and get me the right book to read. Put the right person in my path. Put the right thought in my path. You know, just like I was re- relying heavily on the universe and Dave to help us. Asking for help, again, not something yeah. I was really good at before. So Wow. It sounds yeah. like you're also highly intuitive as well. Not everybody probably. I, maybe. I think so. Just what you said right there. You know, listening to your yeah. gut, not everybody's gut is as reliable and also mm-hmm. still communicating with Dave and, and mm-hmm. continuing to keep that communication line open. And, you know, yeah. that may be a little radical, but I believe in yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I totally believe in it. I never thought of myself as that. I just thought it was like a skill that I had to build. Well, I mean, yeah. even just the fact that when you were drinking too much, you realized, oh, I need to call my mm-hmm. brother. I mean, you, you know, obviously you're really good at listening to your, to your gut and your heart, yeah. you know, yeah. that's, that's good. 
yeah. probably helped you a lot get through all this. So yes. yeah. What advice do you have for other people who are experiencing this type of profound grief, especially losing a husband or a spouse? I think I was just so hard on myself that first year. My advice was just to acknowledge that this is such an, a difficult experience. And so overwhelming. So go easy on yourself. And when it does start to feel like really overwhelming and unmanageable, ask for help because people want to help. I think it's kind of in our nature. Like people do want to help, especially those around you who are just struggling with, oh my gosh, I see, I see you and I don't know how to help you. So either I'm not going to engage with you or I'm not going to say what I want to say. So it's, it's easier to just acknowledge what you're going through and just ask for that help. Reach your hand out because people do really want to help. Yeah. And they often, like you said, they often don't know how to. So if you're specific about what you need, that probably is a better way to get that kind of help. And sometimes you don't know specifically what you need, even if it's like mowing their lawn. I didn't know. I like, I mowed lawns when in my teens, but I didn't know how to mow a lawn. Like, oh God, knew nothing about cars or anything like that. So, or how to change a bike chain, little things like that, um, that Dave would always do. And so that's a really good way just to, you know, ask for help. And then if you're a, like a widow champion or a grief ally of people who have lost someone and just jump in and just do something. If you're at the grocery store, maybe get a bag of groceries for them. Yeah. Those are good suggestions. And I know you have a free uh, guide on your website about how people can support widows or people who've lost a loved one, right? Yeah. Tell people about that. Yeah, I do. I have two free guides. One is towards the, I call them the widow champion. You know, you have a widowed loved one in your life and you don't know what to do or say, and also things not to say or do. They're on my free guide for widow supporters. So that can be downloaded on my website. And then I have another guide specifically for widows all around self-care. And it has a list of and a, and a link to all the songs. Like music was huge for me. Oh. Oh, Music yeah. was huge. That was a way I could tap into my emotions and express myself and singing. So I have a, a songs. I've got the books that I read and also the podcasts that I listened to and some journal prompts. I was, I was not great at journaling, but when I did journal, I thought it was really powerful. Some of the uh-huh. questions that I asked myself. So I have some of those journal prompts in there. I had a hard time 10 years ago finding resources as a young widow who was solo parenting through these past 10 years. I really dug into and I have tons of resources on you know what helped me. And again, like music, podcast, books, those really helped me move through and, and groups. There's a lot of support groups out there uh-huh. now. That's for, for great. Widows, for young widows. Mm-hmm. You ended up remarrying. Mm-hmm. Was that a difficult process? Walk us through that. How did you, I mean, it must have been, I, I'm just imagining not having been widowed, it must have been something you had to kind of work through to get to the point where you could have a relationship again. Oh yeah, Marie. It was, it wasn't like, you know, in the twenties or when you're in college, like, Hey, uh, met you at a party. Let's, let's do this thing. You know <laughs> you know what I mean? It was right. Uh, when you were younger, I had to be really thoughtful about what I wanted. I was about 18 months out. Yeah. I was asking myself all these powerful questions and I was like, what do I want? And I did want companionship. I wanted someone to touch me. You know, I hadn't okay. been touched and I would get pedicures and massages, you know, but but it right. wasn't the same thing. Right. 
and I like partnership. Like mm-hmm. I like being in partnership and I, and I think I'm good at partnership and I wanted that in my life again, but I also had to think about how does this affect my kids? And I had to be really clear about what I wanted. What Did I just want to date or did I want a long-term thing? And so I wrote down like two and a half, three pages of what I wanted in this experience, what I wanted in a new partner, what I wanted in dating. And I just free wrote and didn't judge anything that I wrote. So I came up with this list and I folded it up and I put it in my desk drawer. And I was like, okay, well, I just ordered all this up. (laughs) So it's coming to me eventually. And I just kind of didn't think about it. And at that point, like three months later, I just decided that I would go on a couple of the dating sites and that was kind of freaky. So I didn't like that. (laughs) It was just weird. And people weren't spelling. I was always wondering, like, if I could help you with your dating profile, dude, I could probably help you out because they weren't <laughs> spelling very good. So that was one of one of the things on my list was like, must be a good spelling. <laughs> that was not top, but it was it was pretty high up there on that list. <laughs> Uh, But I joined a meetup group for single parents over 45, and I went to one of the events, which was a dinner, a restaurant in Portland that I really always wanted to go to, but I didn't want to go by myself. What was the restaurant? Noble Rot. Oh, yeah. Uh Yeah, on Burnside. Uh Yeah. And it's got this lovely view of the outdoor deck with a lovely view of, of downtown Portland. So there was an event. I'm like, I'm signing up. So I signed up. So there was 12 of us and I'm talking to a gal on my right. And then I kind of overhear a conversation across the table. And this guy says he grew up in, in Tigard, which is where I grew up. And so I said, well, hey, I, I grew up in Tigard too. What's your name? And told me, and I'm like, I think I kind of like, what year did you graduate high school? <laughs> and we graduated in the same year. Oh my gosh. And we started talking about like people we knew, like we had mutual friends and, you know, he looked different because he had, you know, his silver hair now and I look different, you know, 30 years later. And in our adult lives, we had lived in Beaverton, like a street and a half away from each other. Our kids went to the same school, elementary school. (laughs) And it was like all these crazy coincidences like we were encircling each other's lives kind of the venn diagram or something like we were kind of in each other's lives in this weird way and so we ended up going on a date like a month later and that was that he was the first guy i dated sean was the first (laughs) i dated and it was really important to me that he respect my relationship that i still have with dave and also respect my parenting and get along with my kids. Also respect that he's not their dad, but he is a really good father energy and which he he is. I mean, he's all these things. I, I remember going back after a few dates and I would I pulled out my list and I would check off things. <laughs> and then as we got to know each other, I started checking off more and then kind of the nerd in me went and like, okay, he hit like 83% of my list. Did you give him a spelling test? Well, so he was he's not the best speller, but I had to let that go, Marie. I had to let it go. Because, oh, you know, so he's and he's brilliant. He's a software engineer. That's well, kind of a big joke. The fact that he's that he's bright, that probably helped you to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
right? Yeah, oh like he's, he's he's incredibly intelligent. Probably one of the most intelligent people in my oh, life that or that I know. Gosh. I joke. Man, right. That was number one. I had to really. Oh, that's so you know, funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I haven't met other people who've done this, but I made a list too. Mm-hmm. When I think I was in college and I was seeing a therapist and I was trying to get over my college boyfriend and mm-hmm. she had me make a list. And then I met Mike. I met him after I was in college. I lived in Japan and that's how I met him. I mean, things like likes to sing, is a good singer, values family, you know, all these different mm-hmm. things. And is confident and is funny and well read and all these things. Yeah, he pretty much aced the, the test. So it'd be cool. I, do you still have that list? Oh, I do. I still have the list. And <gasps> and I think I'd forgotten that I had written it until I found it later. Yeah, I still have the list. And Ooh, you should like see the percentage that he hit. I know, I know. <laughs> I think he I think he pretty much has all of them. I really believe in the power of that. I don't know that it would happen for everybody, but I think people should do that. It's a, it's like putting that energy out there. Like, this is what I'm looking for in a relationship. And So you put it down on paper and you thought about all the values and then it helps you recognize that person yes. when they cross your path. Yes. yes. So that's, that was important to me. It's like, okay, how am I going to know who this person is? And that's it was like, true. oh, boom, boom. He's got all these things. That's the person. It is like ordering from a catalog kind of. Yeah. And I think it's, it is. Yeah. How did your boys take it? Like my youngest really wanted that father energy. Like from the, you know, the minute we met, Dave and I met him, he was all about dads. He wanted a dad. He wanted to, oh gosh, this might make me cry. But in his bio, when we were kind of reading through, we didn't get to meet the boys until we made the decision to adopt them and foster mm-hmm. them. But he had told one of the interviewers that all he wanted was a mom and a dad and a dog to lick his face. Oh. And, and it was like, we have all three. So he was super accepting of Sean's father energy. Like he calls him his parent. He calls him Sean, but he is kind of that dad energy. And then my oldest is like, he respects him and they get along, but that's where he's at. He doesn't uh-huh. want another dad or or doesn't need one at the moment. You know, you have to parent the kid you you have and, and respect where they're at. And so, but it's really kind of lovely. Like our families, just our extended families as well, we're all very tight. My mom and, and Sean's mom are friends and they go walking. I think because we all kind of have shared values, uh-huh, you know, right. we have shared family values. Those tigered roots. That's amazing. Right. Going down memory lane and, oh yeah, I biked there or... I used to, you know, go to that 7-Eleven. You know, it's it's that whole familiarity and it's just so interesting how we didn't know each other in our adult lives, but we were so physically close in proximity to each other and probably ran into the, each other at the grocery store several times. Kind of weird. So let's talk a little bit about your book and yes. what you're doing now. So I would tell people kind of like the five second, you know, nickel tour of my life and they would be like, oh my God, you need to write a book. That's crazy. (laughs) That was kind of in my mind. It's like, well, I think I'll write a book. And I just wrote a book about the journey of meeting the kids and parenting them with Dave and then solo parenting and then meeting Sean and kind of how I moved through all that and talk about everything I did to get myself to a place where I could imagine a future because I couldn't imagine a future after Dave died. It was like all our hopes and dreams were just gone in a second. And I had to figure out, well, what are my hopes and dreams? And so that was writing the book. And then last year, 
I just have this calling. I've learned so much through through this, and I know I can help other widows. I just have this calling to serve and support widows. So I got it. You know what a subscription box is? I do. Like, so I got. I didn't really know what one was, but a girlfriend of mine was like, uh, "I got this FabFitFun subscription box," and so I ordered it. And I think I was having not the best day, but all of a sudden this box appears on my doorstep, and I open it up, and it's and I forgot I ordered it. And I'm like, this is great. You know, look at all these really cool self-care items and noticed a shift in how I had in my day after Mm -hmm. receiving this box. And I'm like, well, this would have been fantastic if it showed up on my doorstep every month while I was solo parenting and and moving through all that. And so Mm -hmm. that's how I came up with the idea. And so I created my Filled with Gold subscription box. That's also the title of my book. And so it's a monthly subscription box that I'm finding that a lot of people are gifting to other widows. I bet. Because you don't know what to do. You don't want to, like sending flowers. I hated that. I hated all the plants that I killed. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And the food, you know, food was great that people Uh gave us, but it's so short term. So this would have been great to have received this every month and know that I could take some time out for myself and take a break from all that I was doing and have a little bit of inspiration. And also in that self-care, that's when I had those moments where I did have these glimmers of hope. I was like feeling the warm water of a bath or writing in a journal or reading a book. I had these moments like, okay, life is different, but it could be what I want it to be. And it's everybody's birthright to thrive Mm -hmm. in life and to feel joy. Mm -hmm. And I really grabbed onto that. And so this is a way for me to show up and have this arrive on somebody's doorstep who's probably having a shitty day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And just having a shift there. Like this is what I wanted to to show up. So I'm creating yeah, that. That's so that's wonderful. kind of how, how this all came about. I love it. In your guide, you tell you are advising people on what not to say, you know, having gone through loss myself and to quote a friend of mine who lost a 23 weeker preemie, he would say grief reorders your address book. I mean, did people say insensitive things to you or were they not there for you. That often happens when people go through. Yeah. 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 It's weird. And and on the other hand, too, you have complete strangers. Yes. Yeah. Reaching like reaching out and helping. Yeah. I think it's it's uncomfortable for some people. Like grief is not like, hey, let's let's dig into grief. That's right. fine. Right. You know, I mean, like yeah. there's just people who are super, super uncomfortable with it. And rather than saying, hey, you know, how can I help you or whatever, they're afraid that they may say the wrong thing. So they just don't say anything or do anything. So I did not really lose people, but people stepped away and I noticed it. Right. I noticed it. I also had incredible grief allies and champions. And also, again, perfect strangers, like just doing incredible things for me and my kids. So your address book was reordered, it sounds like. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I thought sure. I had, I had four miscarriages and mm. I felt like with, after the first miscarriage, I got really good support. But as the miscarriages piled up, I stopped telling people mm-hmm. because I felt like I was not getting the kind of support, you know, people didn't want to talk about it. You know, right. a lot of people have had just one. Yeah. I've learned a lot about that, about grief. And, and there are certain people who are 100%, they're comfortable supporting people who are grieving, mm-hmm. but a lot of people are not. Oh, that must have been lonely, Marie. 
you know, yeah. when you're just like, eh, I'm not going to tell anybody. And like, that must've been really hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had, you know, I'm very close to my sister and she had her own infertility issues. So it wasn't that I didn't tell anybody, but I didn't make a big deal out of it, you know? And I did have some hard conversations with people. Like, so my oldest son, when he was born at 24 weeks, I had one friend in particular who completely dropped out of sight. And I confronted him. We were supposed to have dinner with him and his partner that night, the night that I actually had my baby totally, mm. you know, <laughs> it's like surprise, surprise. And oh, later God. on, he he dropped out of sight. And later on, I said to him, yeah, that really hurt my feelings. <laughs> you vanished. I had a mm. hard conversation with him because I cared about it. But our friendship was never the same after that, you know? Uh, I was going to ask you, like, did he, no, was that well I mean, received no, or? No. I mean, we're yeah. still friends, but we're not like close friends at all. So yeah, yeah, I think that, I mean, it's certainly possible to work through those things. And I also had an incident when I was in a women's group. And so two of the other women in the women's group were pregnant at the same time I was. In fact, that I actually had given a baby shower for one of them as I was miscarrying. And I went ahead and did it because I had committed to it. But the next time we met, they were all going on and on about being pregnant. And I just had this miscarriage and I was just so upset by it. And the only woman there who really, she was the one who's hosting. And I went into the kitchen and said, I'm going to leave. She was not pregnant, but she's the only one I'm still in touch with, which is really, oh. I mean, and I, and I did, cause I'm very open. I, the next time I met with them, I told them I was really upset mm -hmm. about this because talking about being pregnant when somebody's had a miscarriage was like, and they right. were really uh, kind of defensive about it. So Ugh. it changed our relationships entirely. And so People just are not sensitive to, and I feel like right. I'm going through loss, grief and loss mm -hmm. has made me so much more sensitive to other people. Right. Like, like I don't, for example, I, I very rarely ask people whether they have any children, for example, mm -hmm. and you said you had infertility issues too. It's like, yeah. you know, you don't know what people have gone through. And, and the other thing that I've also having gone to the NICU experience and having known so many people who have lost babies and children. I have also realized that the friendships I have post 30, 35, I've never had closer friends, but most of them have gone through some sort of grief or loss. Mm -hmm. It may not be a death, but it's something else. They've lost something. Right. And they, you know, I think you can have deeper relationships with people who've gone through those experiences. Oh, somehow, yeah. You know, speaking of that with Rock Voices, our choir, mm -hmm. I yeah. have, I'm getting chills right now. I have like deep, deep friendships. And this started in 2018. When was it? when did we start? I think it was 2018. I have deep friendships with because I met with some widows in that group. They just happened to be there. They just happened they happen to, to be yeah. there, and yeah. we just and and we're connecting through you know through voice and and raising our vibration and our energy and we're singing because singing was something that Dave and I did together. Oh, that I, really? that I had a hard time doing afterwards wow. but i i've met like incredible women and we're deeply connected mm -hmm. and i would not have met them without joining the squire wow. so this is a pitch for rock voices yes that's right oh <laughs> my gosh join up <laughs> i knew that you had a widow collective there but i thought you had brought them along <laughs> no uh -uh. i didn't uh, know anybody i knew uh, not a soul when i when i signed up but i knew that i wanted to sing again i wanted to find my voice again and that's where i found my voice wow. was through rock voices because when i would sing when i was trying to sing before my throat would physically like close up like I couldn't it would just be squawk or you know whatever and I'm 
I have a decent singing voice. I can carry a tune, uh-huh. but I couldn't before. Uh-huh. And, and I would cry. I would uh-huh. cry a lot when I would try to sing. And so I'm like, I really want to sing again. And then, then rock voices came again. One of those things I asked for, Oh really? I, I want universe. I want to sing again, put something in my path. And then boom, there it was. And then I met, oh, like I God. met you, uh-huh. you know, I've met so many incredible people through this choir. It's, it's wow. been amazing. Yeah. Well, and then also the fact that Mark is our director and he's gone through yes. this loss. Wow. I think everybody there uh, yeah. is, is grieving in some way. And we are all together to raise a vibration of that and, and be connected with one another. Honestly. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree. It does seem like an exceptional group of people mm-hmm. that have experienced hard things and have are resilient. To... So shout out Rock Voices. Yes. Yes. This is for come, you. Come join us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I know. I can't wait to get back in person. Uh, I can't wait. Oh, me too. Me too. I oh. so miss it. So my final question is what I always ask, which is, is there a, a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? Yeah, my kids. Even before I met them, I knew all their their story and I had their file from foster care and they amaze me. They really do. Just from who they started out, little little human beings that they started out as and who they are today. They're just intelligent, emotionally intelligent. I'm just so blessed to have them in my life. And they are grit. When you look up grit in the dictionary, their pictures there because oh. they, they have it and they're incredibly resilient. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad that you have them and that you had each other oh, going through this. Too. Yeah. It was meant to, meant to be in some weird yeah. way, you know, like nobody asked for any of this stuff to happen, but it did. It's just kind of how we, how we move through it. Yeah. And I'm also so glad for you that you found a, a partner. I'm blessed. I really am. And it's what I wanted. I'm going after the things that I want in life. Mm-hmm. And yes. And I have Great. support. Well, this has just been such a, a pleasure and an honor to talk to you, Melissa. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. And I got to know you a little bit better. Yeah. You know, this, is, yeah. this is really cool. Yeah. I know because you know those sopranos and altos don't mix very much. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a rumble every <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> You're so you're on the other side of the room. I know. <laughs> yeah, we are actually on exact opposites of the room. I but know, yeah, yeah. I maybe know. we'll have to sing a duet together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That would be fun. Well, if you move back in the area, it'd be fun to go for coffee or something. Like that. Uh, I'd love it. Yeah, I'd love it. When the world starts opening, reopening again mm, and all yes. that. Melissa is so inspiring, and I love the fact we both wrote out lists of her ideal men. I'm looking forward to getting back to singing at Rock Voices with her and healing through music. You can find further details about Melissa's journey and photos on my website. Go to www.fertilegroundcommunications.com and look for the podcast tab. Next week on the Companies That Care podcast, I'm switching up my schedule a bit and featuring Lisa Schroeder, founder and owner of hometown favorite Mother's Bistro and Bar here in Portland, Oregon. I've long been a huge fan of Mother's and Lisa, and she's long used her restaurant space for causes she believes in. Mother's has just reopened after closing down several months into the pandemic. I can't wait to visit again, and I can't wait for you to hear this interview. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please visit our Patreon page and learn how to support us. You can also subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Mm-hmm.